go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can call you Father and know that you are the best of fathers. Even the best of earthly fathers give us only but a glimpse of your goodness and your love and your faithfulness to discipline and train us and teach us and draw us to be like Jesus, your son, your perfect son. So, Father, I pray right now that you would just give us a a hunger for your word, that by your Holy Spirit you would um, lead us now as we seek to make much of Jesus, the Messiah, who will come one day again to make all things new. So we look to you now, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would speak, Lord, and build up this church till Granville is filled with your glory, with the worth of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So if you would, you could turn in your Bibles. There should be a pew Bible nearby, a black pew Bible. We're going to be in Deuteronomy. And just uh, for those of you who haven't been here with us all along, we've been on a journey through the first five books of the Bible, which really, if you ever read a book that has lots of chapters and then it's got parts in it as well, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are like five parts in one book, okay? The whole book is called the Pentateuch or the Torah, and it actually is one narrative stitched together by a, we, we really don't know who put the whole thing together but most of it was written by moses you've got a few things tacked on here and there like the account of moses's death obviously moses didn't write the account of his death and some other things but these five books tell one story and we'll we'll be seeing this at the very end they start off with the words you may have heard them before genesis 1 1 in the beginning god in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, every good story has a beginning and what? An end. And the Torah, these first five books, they start with the beginning, and then they talk about the end. They call it the end of days. And your Bible might have different translations for it. It might say days to come, latter days. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other translations, but... Literally, it's the end of days. So Genesis has, talks about the beginning. Genesis 49 talks about at the end of days. At the end of days, at the end of this story, there's going to be a lion from the tribe of Judah who comes. He's going to be Jesus. And number 23 and 24, uh, this crazy pagan prophet named Balaam is, gets a message from the living God to proclaim blessing over Israel and tell Israel that one day from God's chosen people there's going to rise a king like a star who's going to rule all the nations and that it's going to happen at the end of days. And in our passage today, Deuteronomy chapter 4, well we're going to be in chapters 1 to 4, there's another phrase, occurrence of the phrase end of days. And we'll look at that and in the end of days God's going to changes people's hearts so that they love God with all their heart and with all their soul and the days of the Messiah. So the Torah talks about the beginning and it talks about the end. So we're going to be jumping right into Deuteronomy 4 and if you're just joining us it's going to be like, whoa, it could be like whiplash. You're jumping into the, the end of the book, okay? But we're going to be talking about the end of days but you haven't heard the beginning. So I'm going to do my best to try to help us so we're not completely lost. But just know that I commend the book to you and, uh, and uh, the whole book. 
Go home and read it if you're, you're like, man, I wish I knew more about this book. It's an awesome, awesome story, ultimately about God's plan to save the world through one man, Jesus Christ. So with that, that wasn't in my notes, but I'd like to start with this phrase, clinging to life. You ever heard that phrase? He's just clinging to life. Usually it's used in a medical context. Someone is in the ICU and they're clinging to life. They're close to death, so they're fighting. Yet this phrase could also be applied to other realms of our existence. For example, have you ever been on the top of a mountain admiring the view and you want to get really close to the edge? So you keep going close to the edge, closer, 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 and you get right up and I don't know about, like my brother Luke, he's a little crazy. We were hiking the other day. He's like used to the jungle, Papua New Guinea jungles. He just walked right up to the edge of a cliff and he's just standing there looking over it. I'm just like, yeah, I got down and did the scooch move. <laughs> you know what the scooch is? Where you sit on your butt and you scooch up to the edge and thank God for good tread on your sneakers. All right? Luke's a little crazy. He always has been. Papua New Guinea just brought it out even more. <laughs> but anyway, my sneakers, my hands, my jeans, they were clinging to life. In that case, to the rocks. Every year, people actually do die from getting too close to the edges of cliffs and bridges and waterfalls. And usually it's because they're like trying to take a selfie. I did not take a selfie. And they forget to cling to life because they're distracted. Or about, how about this? You're driving on the road in a snowstorm and all of a sudden your car starts to go sideways. Like you know how when you're driving in snow, I don't know if you Georgia folks have ever driven in snow, but you're driving in snow and there's this part where the tread isn't going. And you want to keep your tire out of that little strip. But all of a sudden, you look this way, and your left tire hits that spot where there's snow, and it's not very packed, and all of a sudden, whoosh. Guess what? You're clinging to your steering wheel in that moment for dear life, for your very life. Because what you do in that moment with your steering wheel will determine whether or not you live or die, maybe. Or at least your car dies. The will to live is strong even involuntary. And today, we're going to look at Deuteronomy, where Moses calls God's people to cling to his words for their very life. Their life depends on them clinging to the word of God. Let's listen. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1 to 4. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I'm teaching you to perform so that you may live. Listen so that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who follow Baal Peor, that's a false god, the, god, the Lord God has destroyed them from among you. But, verse 4, you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. You want to live? Cling to the Lord. Here, Moses is calling Israel, listen to God's words, God's instructions on how to live. And the reason is because their life depends on it. My child, imagine, running towards the road. Stop! That child's life depends on my words on whether they heed those words or not. A good father's words are words of life. 
That's what we get in Deuteronomy. Rejecting his words, adding to his words, will get Israel destroyed. But holding fast is the way to live. So, that's what Deuteronomy is about. Clinging to the words of God. Not any other word. Not clinging to any other savior. No false god can save. A life jacket full of sand can't save you from drowning. You need a real one. And the Bible, the God of the Bible alone, he is the source of life. Both now and forever. Back in Genesis 1, at the beginning of the story, we saw this. God made everything that we see, according to the Bible story, with words. It wasn't like he reached around and found some dust and found some sand and put it together and said, oh, yeah, hey, look. No, he created everything that he uses to make the world. He created everything by his word. And he even sustains all things by his word. Scientists call it the laws of nature, the laws of logic, right? Those are just ways of God speaking consistently. The laws of nature, the laws of logic are just the way that God speaks sustaining the universe with the laws of gravity. He designed it. It's his plan. And Adam and Eve broke his word. If you break the words of life, what happens? You die. It's like crawling out on a branch. This is a bad idea. And the branch is holding you, and you take a saw, and you cut the branch off. What are you going to do? You're going to fall. You cut the thing that gives you life, that's sustaining you. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And it plunged them into both physical death eventually, but even more importantly, spiritual death. Separation from the God of life. So keeping God's words in Genesis is the way to cling to life. And that's the same for Israel here at the end of the story of the Torah in Deuteronomy. Don't be like Adam and Eve. Don't break the word that gives you life. Cling to the words of life and live by them. Live by God's word. So this morning, Deuteronomy 1 to 4 is going to be our focus. And we're going to look at four things in these chapters. Four things. First, we're going to look quickly at chapters 1 to 3. They give us a, a recap, a, a, a quick survey of Israel's rebellion against God, of the story that we've been reading about in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that's Deuteronomy 1 to 3. Quick flyover. Israel continues to rebel against God, but God has been faithful and good to them to preserve them despite their unbelief. Second, then in chapter 4, we're going to see that Moses calls Israel multiple times to cling to God's word because their lives depend on it. And then third, we'll see Moses give Israel warnings of the consequences for failing to keep God's words. And fourth and finally, we'll look at God's promise to Israel that one day they will finally listen to God with all their heart and with all their souls so that they may live. So, chapters 1 to 3. This is the first step of our sermon today, a recap. In Deuteronomy 1 to 3, you've got Moses, the leader of God's people, Israel. And he's standing with them just outside the promised land, the land that God has promised to give them. And he's speaking to the children of the, the Israelites who had died in the wilderness outside the land of promise. So he's speaking to the kids of rebellious parents who had died 40 years ago. They had died in the wilderness because they refused to trust the Lord and obey his word and go in and take possession of the land. Breaking the words of life had brought them death. So 
I'll read this in chapter 1, verses 29 to 36. Here's Moses' brief summary, starting in verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. That's referring to the enemies of Israel in the land that they were supposed to go into. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And we learn later Joshua is among is another one who didn't reject the Lord and who gets to go into the land. He actually leads them into the land. So, except Caleb, he shall see it, and to him and his sons, I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. So here in these verses, we get a recap of kind of the story that we've been reading all up to this point. We see that after all that God has done for Israel, carrying them like a daddy carries his little boy, still... Israel didn't trust their father. They rejected him, and they, because of that, they were cut off from life in the promised land. It's like a little boy who's in his daddy's arms being carried to a picnic at the beach, and he's screaming and kicking because he wants to get down because he's afraid of the waves by the beach, and he wants to go back to the car. You want to go back to the car? It's hot in the car. It's, it's not life-sustaining. Let's go to the beach. No, Israel's like that little boy who doesn't trust his daddy's heart. And now in Deuteronomy, chapters 2 to 3, Moses continues his story of Israel's recent history. How they wandered in the wilderness and how God was with them the whole way, meeting their every need. Chapter 2, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. There weren't clothing stores in the desert where they were. There weren't food stores for a couple million people. God kept their clothes from wearing out miraculously. God provided manna for them, bread in the desert, and water. Of course, read the story, you know that they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled and grumbled every single time. He pours his goodness out, and they're still grumbling, and they're dying for their rebellion, and yet he's still providing for them and sustaining them and bringing them eventually to this promised land. He's been faithful, the story shows. They can trust him in the future. They can also trust him to be faithful to judge their sin. He's consistent. He does not sweep sin under the rug. And so, not only does the history lesson give lessons for obedience, but also warnings for disobedience. History is important. All history belongs to God, including your family history and the history you and I are making right now. The legacy that we're leaving our kids and those who come behind us and our friends. Time belongs to the Lord. The world, this world that we live in, it's his world. The past, the future, the present, it belongs to him. And so when we study his dealings with his people, 
even with our own families, and we look back at our family history and the legacies of those who have gone before us, we can see the consequences of sin, of breaking God's word. We can also see the reward for faithfulness and steadfastness of God's love to those who keep his commandments and follow him. He is a faithful God. And that's what Moses is doing for these people. Look at your history. Look at your family history and see what God has done. And then he finishes up this history lesson and he turns in chapter 4 to giving Israel some challenges drawn from reflecting on their history. So in chapter 4, the the next three points of the sermon, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see Moses say, cling to God's words for your very life. Cling, Israel. Cling, like you would cling to a life preserver in the middle of a wave. Cling, like you would cling to a a, a flagpole or something that's not moving in the middle of a hurricane. Cling to God's words, Israel. That's the first exhortation. Second, let go of God's words to your peril. You let go, you die. It's that simple. And then third, one day, God promises that Israel will listen to his words with all their heart and their soul. So first, after the history lesson, we see Moses tells Israel, cling to the words of God for life. In light of all the past rebellion, Moses says, hold fast to the Lord. Listen to him. Hear him with your heart. See him with the eyes of your soul and obey his words with everything that you are. Don't take anything from his word. Don't add anything to his words. So don't lessen God's words. Don't add to them. Obey them exactly. So we're going to unpack these parts of Moses' challenge first. First, Moses wants the people to hear God, not just with their ears, but with their heart. You ever been talking to somebody and you know that their ears are listening, but their heart is not engaged? My poor wife, I, I know that I do this to her occasionally. I'm distracted. And she's talking. She's like, you're not listening. Oh, I hear you but I don't hear you. And I have to, well, refocus. You know what? In that moment, I'm failing to love. Failing to listen is a failure to love. God is calling Israel not just to hear him with their ears, but to love him with their hearts enough to listen and actually hear him and obey. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live. Listen and live. These words are your life. Verse 4, Deuteronomy 4, verse 4. You who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. Verse 32 to 40. I'll read these now. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, Has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown 
Why were all these great things shown to Israel? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. Think training, fatherly training. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words from the midst of the fire because he loved your fathers. Therefore he chose their descendants after them and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and commandments, which I am giving to you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Notice the progression here. God let them hear his words so that they are to know that he is God, and so that they would take this to heart. And in taking it to heart, they're to keep or guard these words that they heard for their very life. Hear God's words, take it to heart, and obey. But God also talks about the importance of Israel seeing here in Deuteronomy 4. In the same way that you can hear someone but not truly hear them, so you can see something without truly seeing its significance. So God's calling Israel to see with the eyes of their heart, to see the significance of who he is and never forget. 4 verse 9. Only give heed to yourself, verse 9, and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Do you see what God has done for you, Israel? Do you see how faithful he's been? Don't forget. He wants the things they've seen to be on their hearts. I've already read these verses, but down in 34 to 35, God unpacks again what they've seen. We focused on hearing, now seeing. God said, has a God tried to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. So Israel has already seen the story that we read about in Exodus. They've seen with their eyes the majesty and the power of the one true God, how he defeated Pharaoh in Egypt, the greatest ruler of the world at that time. He defeated him with mighty plagues, ten of them. How God split the Red Sea so that Israel could walk across on dry ground. They saw that. Maybe they walked through and saw fish on the side. I mean, this is a miraculous thing that God did for them. And on dry ground, they're rescued through this sea. And their eyes saw it, but did it get to their hearts? Did they really see the significance of what was happening? That's what Moses is getting at. God provided manna and water in the wilderness for 40 years. He made Mount Sinai where they heard his word. He made it shake. They saw the mountain shake. The cloud come down on it. It blazed with fire. There was a mighty trumpet blast. And the people fall down on their faces hearing the words of the living God. 
Moses is saying, let these things that you've seen and heard change your heart and let it move you to love and obey God with everything you are. We won't go into it here, but he also says, don't take away from God's word and don't add to God's word. Legalists like to add to God's word. Well, I know God's commanded us to worship him, but if you really want to worship him, these styles are the best styles. And they add to God's word. God doesn't give us an exact dress code. He just commands us to love him with everything that we are. Legalists add to God's word and say, well, if you really want to love God, you've got to wear this and not wear that. Adding to God's word is deadly because it paints God like a bad father. A father who doesn't give rules that are good enough. We've got to help him out a little bit. And people who take away from God's word also paint God like a bad father. If he was really a good father, he wouldn't have said that. Or he doesn't really know. Or, yeah, I know he said that, but he's not going to punish us if we do what we want. So we might as well live it up. He's a God of grace. It paints him as a bad father. Either a father with no spine or a father who gives terrible rules that should be disobeyed. Both taking away from God's word and adding to God's word are deadly. On the one hand, you have a Pharisee. On the other hand, you have a liberal who says, Hey, God's word, eh, we can do. We can, it, it's malleable. It's changeable. All right, I just used liberal because I couldn't think of any other. Somebody who's very liberal with God's word and uses it as a license to sin. Both represent the same posture towards God. Distrust in the Father. But God is a good father to Israel. He carried them like a father would carry his son when the going gets tough. And he's a good father for you and I. Every word he gives us is for our good, for our very life. We add to his words or take away from his words to our peril. That leads to the next big focus in Deuteronomy 4. Moses wants God's people to know that they let go of God's word to their peril, to their death. It's a dangerous thing to let go of the word of God. The opposite of holding fast to the Lord for Moses to clinging to his word in Deuteronomy 4 is forgetfulness. Not just forgetfulness of mind, but a heart that forgets who God is and what he's done and thus stops trusting him, stops listening to his words and obeying his commands. And that's far more serious than failing to cling to a steering wheel in a snowstorm. Eternal separation from the living God is far worse than physical death. Look at Deuteronomy 4 verse 9. We've already read it, but I'll read it again. Only give heed to yourself. Guard yourself, literally. Keep your soul. Guard your soul diligently so that you do not, got, do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So don't forget the Lord. Give heed 
to yourself, Israel. Guard your hearts like you forget what God, lest you forget what God has done and you drift away and you turn to other gods, gods who cannot give life, who cannot save. Our hearts, they're like a city that needs to be guarded day and night, not from enemies outside who want to come in and destroy, but from the enemy within, the greatest enemy, our own hearts and their proneness to wander from the Lord, to lose our grasp on his word and forget who he is and what he's done. And when we forget the Lord, like Israel, we turn to other lords, other things to satisfy our hearts, to give us the things that we can't stop longing for. All of us, no matter how hard you try, you can't stop longing for comfort, for security, to be known, to be loved, for pleasure, for happiness. Those things are part of what it means to be human. We long for these things. Our hearts are desire factories, and we were made by God that way, that we may find our all, find our joy in knowing and loving Him as the fountain of all good things. And yet, when we forget the Lord, we turn to other things, other fountains. The prophet Jeremiah says that the people of Israel have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water, and they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, like a well filled with sand. And we're just digging in the things of the world saying, satisfy me, satisfy me, alcohol, satisfy me, pornography, satisfy me, anger, whatever it is, drugs, you name it, that our world runs to, that we run to. And they leave us empty with gravel in our mouths, hungry for more because they can never satisfy and just like us in our struggles, Israel would turn and turn to other gods. And that's from verses 15 to 19. So watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water below the earth. If you're like, what? Basically, God's saying, don't worship anything in creation. Anything that God's made, don't bow down to it. Don't worship it. Verse 19, Beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away to worship them and serve them those which the lord your god has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven so basically the summary of this is don't forget god and worship creation in his place which is a struggle for all of us you might not be bowing down before the sun but we bow down before things that awe us capture our hearts things that god created to draw our hearts out and worship to him. God filled this world with good, wonderful, awesome things for us to see and enjoy and experience, as long as they're according to his word, that our hearts might thank him for them as the giver of all things. But what we do is we replace the giver with his gifts, which is at the heart of idolatry. We worship creation. We enthrone, in creation. We enthrone creation and we dethrone the creator. That's what idolatry is. And Israel does it because they forget the Lord. And it's the same for us. We forget God. We are so prone. That one of my favorite songs, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, says, prone to wander, 
Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're constantly chasing other things we need to be reminded by Moses and God's word. Not to forget the Lord. Not to drift. In verses 23 to 24, Moses, he reiterates this charge and he gives the sobering reason for the command. Watch yourselves, he says, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord has commanded you. So don't make an idol. And here's the reason. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You think, what? Jealousy? Jealousy isn't good. Jealousy's bad, but what about a husband who's jealous for his bride? He doesn't smirk when other men flirt with her. Ha, that's funny. Not a good husband. No, he's jealous for his bride. He bristles because love, true love, is jealous. Why? Because we're made in the image of a jealous God who loves us with a jealous love. He doesn't want us to exchange love for him with other things that he has made. He doesn't want anyone or anything besides himself on the throne of our hearts. Ultimately, as we talked about last week in the sermon on loving God with our everything, that's for our good. He commands us to love him with our everything because he knows that he is our everything at the end of the day. He is the source of all good things. Loving God is the path of life and joy, both now and for eternity. Israel fails to do this, though. The result of their failure is that they're going to be kicked out of the land of promise that they're about to enter. All the commands of Israel here in Deuteronomy 4 to cling to God's word, to guard themselves, to love God with all their heart, with all their soul. All these commands coming from outside them do not go inside them to their hearts and end up changing their hearts at the end of the day. It's the great tragedy of the Torah is that these people have hard hearts. They will end up forgetting the Lord and they replace their worship of him with worship of other things and other gods, they will be kicked out of the land. It's going to happen. In the words of the prophet Isaiah many years later, he says, bring out the people who are blind but have eyes, who are deaf but have ears. Many years later, God's people were still blind to the beauty and death of God and deaf to his voice. Jesus says the same thing, quoting Isaiah to the Pharisees. You're ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. This people's heart is callous. And he says to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. God has made known to them the mystery of the kingdom of God. And we'll get to that in a minute. But here in Deuteronomy 4 verse 30, we learn of the hope that Jesus talks about. To his disciples the blessing of hearing the blessing of seeing the lord and knowing him and that's point four this morning the promise that israel will listen to god one day the promise i'm going to read deuteronomy 4 26 to 31 moses writes this i call heaven and earth to witness against you today what's the biggest witnesses you could summon for this courtroom scene how about heaven and earth it's symbolic. The heavens are watching you, and the earth is watching you. All of heaven watches. All of creation watches. They're witnessing that you will surely perish quickly from the land 
where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hand, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. You will seek the Lord your God. Here's the promise. And you will find him if or when is a good translation. When you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days or literally at the end of days. At the end of the story, verse 30, you will return to the Lord your God and you will listen to his voice. For why? Why is this going to happen? The Lord your God is a compassionate God or a merciful God. He will not fail you nor destroy you as a nation nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. So notice just a few things here. Moses says Israel will get kicked out of the land. It's going to happen for they're disobeying the Lord. They will be destroyed but not completely. They will be scattered among the peoples and they will serve the gods of other nations. They'll be idolaters. This all happened. You can read about it in the story of the Bible. But Moses says, even after all this, if they turn to the Lord and seek him with all their heart and all their soul, they will find him. He's not far from them. And now, verse 30, there we read the promise from the Lord that this is not an if. It will take place. When you are in distress, the translations are slightly different here. I'm doing the New American Standard Bible. I think it does a really good job with this passage. When you are in distress, all these, and all these things have come upon you. What things? Like Things like exile. Things like being scattered, kicked out of the land. Verse 30, at the end of days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. The beginning tells how Adam and Eve broke the word and didn't listen to the voice of God. But at the end of days, God's people will. Why? God's merciful. He's compassionate. Now, there's a question. Why? How? If they haven't up till this point, what's going to change? They heard the words of God that made the mountains shake. They saw fire consume Mount Sinai. They got God's word written on tablets of stone. What's going to get the words from outside of them to inside of them? Well, Hosea the prophet talks about this day, the end of days. In Hosea... Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The prophet Hosea, writing hundreds of years later, okay? He writes this, talking about what Moses is telling us. He says, For the sons of Israel, they'll remain many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. So that's referring to their time of exile, the time that they get kicked out of the land. And it's also referring to the time after when they do go back to the land, but they still don't have a king. 
they still don't have a nation. Their temple is just a wimpy little house that they cry about, okay? Because it's not anywhere near the former glory. When that happens, he says, afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness at the end of days. Did you hear that phrase, end of days, again in Hosea? Again, we've talked a lot about this phrase. I mentioned it at the beginning of our time together. It's just a hugely important phrase in the Bible. It shows up in Daniel. It shows up in Isaiah. It shows up in Hosea here. It shows up all through the Torah. It's hugely important. At the end of days, Moses is saying that after the exile, in the end times, Israel's going to return to the Lord, and they're going to seek him, and they'll seek David their king. Now, this David person, this promised son of, He's the promised son of Israel's greatest king, King David. God promised King David of Israel many years before, living in the land, that he would have a son who would one day also be the son of God and who would rule the whole world on an eternal throne. And at the time that Hosea is writing, David's been dead for a long time. So when he says Israel's going to return and seek the Lord at the end of days, like Deuteronomy says, with all their heart and their soul, they're going to return and seek the Lord. And Hosea is saying at the end of days, just like Deuteronomy said, they're going to return and they're going to seek the Lord. And he adds, David, their king. Where would Hosea get this from? That they're going to seek the Messiah, this promised rescuer, this promised king. He gets it from the Torah. He gets it from Moses. At the end of days, in Genesis 49, verses 1 to 10, we read about the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, Jacob says. Verse 40, 49, verse 1 says, Come, I'll tell you what's going to happen at the end of days. Verses 9 and 10. The scepter is not going to depart from Judah, who is described as a lion, until it comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Skipping forward to Numbers 23 and 24, the prophet Balaam says, Come, I'll tell, I'll tell you, what's going to happen at the end of days, basically. And he says, there's going to be a star that rises in Israel. Why did the wise men from the east flock to this star? Because of Balaam's prophecy. There's a star that's going to rise in Israel. A king is born, and he's going to rule all the nations. They're going to belong to him, and he's going to defeat all the enemies of the people of God in Numbers 24. So there's a king coming at the end of days, and Hosea says at the same time that the king comes, at the end of days, what Deuteronomy said will happen. They're going to seek the Lord, and they're going to seek their king with all their heart and with all their soul. Instead of exile and death, they're going to find life forever in God's new creation. And how is this going to happen? We know now it's going to happen because the Messiah is going to come, Jesus is going to come, this, this son of David at the end of days. But what's this Messiah going to do? How's God going to make them love him? Deuteronomy doesn't leave us scratching our heads. Deuteronomy chapter 30 holds the answer. Well, actually, 29 to, to 30, but we'll get there eventually. Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, 30 we'll see a, just a rehashing of all the themes that Deuteronomy 4 talks about, just in longer form. Obey God's word for your life. Disobey, and it brings curse. 
And then Deuteronomy 29, yeah, you're going to disobey. You're going to get kicked out of land. It's going to happen. Things aren't going to go well for you. And then in 30, verse 6, if you, have a, if you have your own personal Bible, I'd encourage you to underline this verse. It's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. We read that in the days after Israel has been kicked out of the promised land for their sin. They're, they're in exile. They're, they're in their sin. In those days, God's going to do something to fix their hearts, to fix the sin problem. Moses writes, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Remember those words from Deuteronomy 4, verse 30? With all your heart and with all your soul? How is it going to happen? The circumcision of the heart. This is a gross metaphor. Okay? It's meant to grab our attention. It's meant to be gross because there's something gross in our hearts that needs to go out. And it's called sin. And God's going to do a heart surgery. Every one of you who's a Christian who has, has had open heart surgery, God has gone in and is starting the process of change. And God here says, through Moses, that after the exile, he's going to show up and he's going to fix the hearts of the people. He's going to cut away the sinful flesh from their hearts and make them love him with all their heart and with all their soul so that they would find life. And as the prophets of Israel came and started reflecting on Moses' words hundreds of years before, they started to say more about this phenomenon. They said that this would happen through the Spirit of God. That would be like the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 and 37. Or the prophet Jeremiah who says it's going to happen and it's going to be like a new covenant. God's going to teach his people to know the Lord. And he's going to put his words on their hearts and they're going to love him in Jeremiah 31. So we're going all over the Bible. Just You don't have to remember all these paces. But just know that God's prophets came later and they say it's going to happen. What Moses said is going to happen. This love for God that gets to the hearts of the people, finally. It's going to happen through a special operation that God does to his people. Operation, circumcision of the heart. And it's going to happen by the Spirit's knife. It's going to be a miracle. So the Spirit will change the hearts of the people so that they love the Lord. And friends, if you trust Jesus, this is true for you. That's the mark of a true Christian. Because the prophets also said this wouldn't just happen to Israel. Moses said it too, but we'll get there. It's going to happen to all flesh. Joel 2, 32. I'll, in the latter days, afterwards, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh will have this work of God. All who trust in Jesus. Love for the Lord is the mark of the true Christian. And it's awakened in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you can put there by going to church or by reading the Bible or by being religious or just doing some good things. You cannot create love for God in your heart. It's put there by God. It's a miracle. God, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, he's poured his love in your hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls this the new birth. How do you get born again? By the Holy Spirit who gives you a new heart. That does not mean that the Christian's heart is perfect. No. I only need to look at myself to know that. The Christian heart is not perfect. And yet one day, we believe that we will be. 
Jesus, when he returns and makes all things new, those who belong to him, they will live in the land of the promised new creation rest that's way better of a land than Israel was shown in the promised land. They lost that promised land for their rebellion. We will never lose the new creation rest because God will have changed our hearts completely. He started that process now, awakening love by the Spirit in our hearts, love for God, love for Jesus, true love for neighbor that flows from love for God. And one day, he'll complete the work he started, and we will stand before him holy and blameless in his sight. And in the meantime, the Spirit, as we close, he uses warnings, he uses exhortations, like we read today, to keep us loving the Lord. His warnings, when the people that truly have ears to hear and hearts to understand, when they hear those words, those warnings, cling to the Lord, don't forget, don't drift away. Those warnings are God's way of keeping those who are truly His. He is a mighty God. He has a mighty hold on his people by the spirit he's put in our hearts and he will not let his people go but the, one of the ways that he keeps those who are truly his is through his words of warning like we've read this morning so new creation church and our visitors today don't forget the word of god don't forget what god did for israel and what he's done for us jesus gave his life for you on the cross. He died on the cross to pay for your sins and for my sins, for every little impulse in our souls to break God's word. I'm the pastor of this church, one of them, and the impulses in my soul to break God's word, I only become more aware of them as I grow in my walk with Christ. The saints that are closest to being with Jesus will tell you, they look back at their life and they say, Oh, man, I need Jesus' forgiveness. Yes, we do grow, we do change, but we, part of growth is just growing more aware of our sin and of our pride and our need for Jesus' forgiveness and for his work. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin, to cover our shame. Don't forget him. Guard your heart, lest you forget. Call to mind every day the gospel word about what he has done, how he saved you, provided for you, made mighty promises to you of future glory with him forever and of present provision and guidance. He is totally trustworthy and his word is totally for our good. We're living in the end of days, friends. The Messiah has come. These are the end times. And the Lion of Judah has said he will come again soon and make all things new. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make it shape our hearts and fashion us into the likeness of your Son, who always loves you perfectly. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we ask in your precious name. Amen.